Chapter 7 of Why We Love Lincoln This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Granville Penn Why We Love Lincoln by James Creelman Chapter 7 We love Lincoln because his life plucks every harp string in true democracy. Lincoln is the answer to socialism. He represents individualism, justifying opportunity. Self-government stands vindicated in his name. The thought of him is at once an inspiration and challenge to the poorest and most ignorant boy or man in America. But we love him most of all because he saved the nation which Washington began and, in the bloody act of salvation, brought human slavery to an end in the Great Republic. In following Lincoln through his picturesque and gaunt youth and through his service in the Illinois legislature and in Congress, to the point where the inner and outer influences of his life, his soul, and its environments merged into one supreme idea, the preservation of the Union, we must not forget the things that preceded the final test of his life. Up to Lincoln's time, it had not been determined whether the fathers of the Republic had really produced a nation or merely a contract or treaty between independent and sovereign states. The system of separated, incoordinate, and aloof colonies, a shrewd and stubborn British device for keeping their American subjects weak by disunion, grew into the system of states which formed the Republic. When the Constitution of the United States was framed, ten of the thirteen states had prohibited the importation of slaves. Georgia and the two Carolinas still permitted the slave trade with Africa. In order not to leave these three states out of the Union, the Constitution permitted the importation of slaves until 1808. But the conscious horror of that concession is to be recognized in the care with which the word slavery is avoided. To satisfy all the slave-owning states whose consent was necessary to the adoption of the Constitution, slavery itself within those states was recognized and sanctioned by a clause providing that five slaves should equal three free persons as a basis of representation in the National House of Representatives. So that, whether we like the remembrance or not, it is a fact that the founders of the nation actually did sanction slavery, although there was some righteous talk in the Constitutional Convention over the reluctant compromise. While this convention in Philadelphia was legalizing slavery, the Continental Congress in New York passed an ordinance for the government of the territory of the United States northwest of the River Ohio, providing that slavery should be forever prohibited in that territory. In 1820, the ocean slave trade was declared to be piracy, punishable by death. In that same year, Congress, under pressure from the slave owners, adopted the Missouri Compromise, by which Missouri was admitted to the Union as a slave state, with the proviso that slavery should be always forbidden in any other part of the territory north of 36 degrees 30 minutes north latitude. New England raged against slavery. Her abolitionists cried out against it night and day to the assertion of the South that slaves were valuable property legally acquired and legally held, they answered that slavery was a deep damnation in the sight of God, an unspeakably cruel crime intolerable among civilized men. They helped slaves to escape from their masters and did everything in their power to make a farce of the laws under which such fugitives might be returned. A great gulf opened between the free states and the slave states, a gulf flaming with passion and menace. Could the nation hold together? There were tremendous scenes in the Senate in 1850 when a compromise was reached. California was to be admitted a free state, slavery was to be abolished in the District of Columbia, and there was to be an effective fugitive slave law. These were the principal points. 
Henry Clay, in his 73rd year, spoke for two days in favor of compromise and peace, picturing the frightful war that must result from a failure to agree. John C. Calhoun, pale, haggard, and dying, rose from his sickbed, staggered into the Senate on the arms of friends, and being too weak to speak, sat there while his plea for the rights of the South was read. Then he went back to his bed to die a few days later, groaning, The South, the poor South, God knows what will become of her. Daniel Webster, too, raised his voice for compromise in one of his noblest orations. William H. Seward and Salmon P. Chase bitterly opposed any compromise on the basis of the Fugitive Slave Law. So fierce did the debate become that Senator Benton drew a pistol on Senator Foote. Yet, in the end, the compromise was adopted and the Fugitive Slave Law was passed. Then, in 1854, Stephen A. Douglas, United States Senator from Illinois, introduced a bill providing a government for the immense country now included in Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, and portions of Wyoming and Colorado, a country larger than all the existing free states. All this region was in the area from which slavery was forever prohibited by the Missouri Compromise. Yet Douglas's bill provided that whenever any part of the territory should be admitted to the Union, the question of slavery or free soil should be decided by its inhabitants. This was the famous squatter sovereignty idea, a virtual repeal of the Missouri Compromise. After a desperate fight in Congress, Douglas carried his bill. It was a startling step and a direct bid for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. By this act, Douglas made himself one of the most conspicuous men in the country. Hell seemed to break loose after President Pierce signed this bill. It became impossible to enforce the fugitive slave law. The anti-slavery agitation in the North broke out with indescribable fury. Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. The abolitionists were almost insane with anger and indignation. Douglas was denounced as a scoundrel who had sold himself to the slaveholders for the sake of his presidential ambitions. Lincoln was a well-supported candidate for the United States Senate in 1854, but he gave up his chance and threw his strength to Lyman Trumbull, a weaker candidate, rather than risk the election of a pro-slavery senator. Miss Tarbell gives this picture of Lincoln by his friend, Judge Dickey. Quote, After a while, we went upstairs to bed. There were two beds in our room, and I remember that Lincoln sat up in his nightshirt on the edge of the bed, arguing the point with me. At last, we went to sleep. Early in the morning, I woke up, and there was Lincoln half sitting up in bed. Dickey, he said, I tell you, this nation cannot exist, half slave and half free. Oh, Lincoln, said I, go to sleep, unquote. The territories of Kansas and Nebraska became the center of interest, for whether they would be slave states or free states must depend upon the vote of their inhabitants, and that was a simple question of emigration. Bands of colonists were sent to Kansas by both the slavery and anti-slavery forces. The work of colonizing the state was organized on a large scale by both sides. The pro-slavery men from Missouri crossed into Kansas in 1854 and elected a pro-slavery delegate to Congress. In 1855, about 5,000 Missourians, armed with pistols and bowie knives, invaded Kansas and carried the elections for the territorial legislature. This legislature enacted the Missouri slavery laws and, in addition, provided the death penalty for inciting slaves to leave their masters or revolt. The Free Soil Kansans thereupon elected a constitutional convention and organized a state government with a constitution prohibiting slavery. Thus, there were two governments in Kansas, one pro-slavery, the other anti-slavery. Blood began to flow as the hostile governments collided. In 1856, Preston Brooks, a nephew of Senator Butler of South Carolina, stole up behind Senator Sumner, who had brilliantly defended the Free Soilers of Kansas, and beat him on the head with a heavy cane till he fell unconscious. The pro-slavery Kansans sacked the town of Lawrence. J. 
John Brown and his abolitionist fanatics went from cabin to cabin in Kansas, killing and mutilating pro-slavery men. Riots and murders terrorized the state. It was war to the knife between slavery and anti-slavery. And Douglas in Washington was pressing his bill, declaring that as soon as Kansas had 93,000 voters, the pro-slavery territorial legislature should call a convention and organize the state. End of chapter 7